0: Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Center for Consciousness and
1: Contemplative Studies. I'm Ava. And I'm Beth. And on Minds Matter, we explore research from neuroscience to psychology whilst talking about our own personal experiences. This
0: week, we have a very special episode for you. We're talking to one of my dearest and most brilliant friends, El Morata, who is a PhD student at UC Santa Barbara in the psychological and brain sciences department. This episode is really special because we recorded it while Beth was visiting me in California. So Elle, Beth, and I were all actually in the same room when we recorded this. Elle touches on her own personal stories of a kind of dual experience of having been both a patient in women's health as well as a researcher in women's health, and how even with all of her expertise, it was really difficult for her to get a diagnosis and proper treatment. We also talk about her lab led by Dr. Emily Jacobs in women's health, and we just talk in general about what it's like to be a woman navigating the healthcare system in the U.S., Canada, and Australia. So I hope you enjoy the special conversation.
2: My name is El Murata. I am a rising fourth-year PhD student at UC Santa Barbara. I'm in the Jacobs Cognitive Neuroendocrinology Lab, and we are really interested in understanding how hormones affect the brain. Before this, I grew up partially in Illinois, partially in Japan, and then I went to Middlebury College, which is a really tiny liberal arts college in Vermont to do my undergrad in neuroscience.
0: So one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on the podcast besides your research is that you recently gave a TED Talk in Santa Barbara, and you shared your experiences and challenges as a patient researcher, so someone who is trying to get help for a women's health issue and the challenges that you went through for that. So we were wondering mm-hmm. if you could share that story with us and what the barriers that you encountered were.
2: So I can go all the way back to middle school. So I remember in middle school, I never really got a consistent period. And I now sort of know that that's normal for girls during puberty when they're first starting. It's pretty normal to have inconsistencies in that. But then by the time I got to sort of early high school, I just completely stopped getting a period. And I knew that this wasn't normal. So I remember going to the pediatrician with my mom. Basically, the pediatrician told me that I wasn't getting a period because I was a cross-country runner because of intense exercise. And that was kind of the end of the story. We didn't really talk about other reasons why this might be. And then the solution was for her to put me on birth control to stabilize my periods, which is a pretty common thing, I think. and We can talk more about that later. But basically, I, like many other people was on birth control throughout the rest of my high school, through college. And then when I got to grad school, I went off birth control for the first time for reasons that we can also talk about later. But I just kind of wanted to see what I would be like without synthetic hormones, that's sort of like my baseline. In addition to sort of being in a long-term relationship, I just had a good opportunity to do that for the first time. I think typically they tell you that going off of birth control, you should go back to sort of your normal in about three months. But I didn't get a period for at least six months, which is definitely not normal. So I go to the doctor and we decide that I should get an endocrine panel. So I wanted to look at my hormones to see if this might tell me something about what might be going on with my body. And my testosterone levels were just off the charts. And looking at this and kind of taking into account my menstrual cycle regularities, this seemed very similar to something called polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS, some of the characteristics of which are you no know, menstrual cycles and high testosterone levels. So I go down a rabbit hole of doing research, knowing what I know from my endocrinology background. I know that the next step is probably to get an ultrasound to confirm that I might have PCOS. So I immediately call up student health and I schedule an appointment with the OBGYN. And I'm going into the office and like have my scientist hat. on. super ready with my evidence. I have my testosterone levels. I have my lack of menstrual cycle. I have my endocrinology like background ready to go and have a great conversation with her. And we don't even get to that because she's super dismissive. She barely looks at my endocrinology, my test results and my history. She's basically just like, oh, yeah, like this is normal to not have you know normal hormone levels. And it's just stress. She keeps on telling me that it's stress and that. She keeps on bringing up the fact that I'm a grad student. She doesn't really have a conversation with me about that. And I think one of the issues was that PCOS has different ways of manifesting in people. And one of the common ways, and I think if people know about PCOS, what they think of is a lot of secondary characteristics of it, such as male pattern baldness or sudden weight gain or excessive hair growth or acne. And I didn't show that. So... She almost had me convinced that I didn't have PCOS because I wasn't showing some of these more like typical characteristics of that. But my goal was to get an ultrasound. And so I really pushed for that and very reluctantly, and after much pushing, I finally was able to get an ultrasound and schedule one with her. Long story short, I do the ultrasound and indeed I do have PCOS and it was the same doctor who did the ultrasound, which was kind of a traumatic experience in itself. But essentially she just told me to go back on birth control, which of course I didn't want to be on in the first place. And then she just told me I might need some help getting pregnant, kind of left it at that. And so at that point, I think my main concern was fertility because again, through sort of my background in neuroendocrinology and from doing my own research, I knew that PCOS is one of the main causes of infertility in women. And so being a woman, you're always you know worried about something like that, kind of always at the back of your mind. And so I was really concerned about that. That was kind of what I wanted to address next in terms of and just in general, not like, figure out how to live with this chronic disorder. I also was learning through my own research that there is no known cause or cure for PCOS which is similar to many other reproductive disorders Again, something we can get to later. Uh, I schedule appointments with an endocrinologist. I also sort of learned that I have some of the more metabolic aspects of the disorder. So I have high insulin levels, I have high cholesterol levels. And I meet with an endocrinologist who puts me on a drug to sort of regulate this, but I could not stomach it. I would go to bed nauseous. I would wake up nauseous and I wasn't even taking the normal dose. And I think that's another thing people don't really consider when they give you drugs like this. But anyways, it didn't help with my condition at all. It didn't stabilize my hormones I wasn't getting a period still and you weren't on the pill during this no I I haven't been on the pill since initially going off of it yeah I talked to her about fertility she refers me to reproductive endocrinologists I meet with a couple of them and they basically the overwhelming sentiment is that they couldn't help me until I was actively trying Mm -hmm. to get pregnant so they're like come back when you're ready to cross that bridge um, when you want to get pregnant which I think I don't know if this is just something in our healthcare system where it's not really preventative it's like you kind of Tackle the issue when it comes up. Uh, it was very much like, we can't help you until this time point. So that was very frustrating because obviously I wanted to figure that out now and not always be worrying in the back of my mind about whether I could get pregnant. And then it's like, well, should I try and get pregnant now if it's going to be more difficult? Mm-hmm. So I feel like that was an added stress to everything. So another bad thing that happened <laughs> is the first ultrasound that I did was not saved which I think in itself is literally just that in itself tells you so much about how much the medical system cares about PCOS and cares about women's health. It's just that it wasn't even saved, which is crazy. The silver lining of it though, is that when I went back to student health to redo it, the woman who did it was an amazing clinician. She was the first one out of these many, many doctors who believed me was helpful and who informed me about this dietary supplement called myo-inositol, which I've been taking since and it's helped stabilize my condition. So Years later, and many doctors later, I finally found someone and I finally was able to sort of try and tackle this diagnosis head on. But I think it's pretty indicative of how the medical system treats women, uh, all of the hurdles that I had to go through. But I think it's just the sad part is that it's a really common thing. I think everyone knows someone who's gone through a very similar thing in terms of dealing with women's health issues.
1: I feel like that's so, I mean, it's so concerning on so many levels, but. You're a scientist in this area and it was still a struggle for you. So, <laughs> what yeah. are women going to do who don't, you know, and exactly. we look up doctors have kind of this power exactly. thing. And so, what, yeah, I don't know. That's just really worrying in those other situations as well. Yeah, yeah I think exactly. that's like the crazy part of the yeah, story to me
0: is that I know you say that it's a common thing that happens, and obviously it, it is a common thing that happens, but the only reason that you, pushed for the ultrasound was because you read your own labs. Yeah. And yeah. I wouldn't know how to read my nice own nice labs. Nice. Yeah. And even if there was elevated testosterone and I saw that, I wouldn't know what that means. Yeah. yeah. So I wouldn't have been able to advocate for yeah. myself at all. And I probably would have just gone back on the pill and been like, oh, exactly. Whatever. And I think yeah. that's
2: pretty common and like I uh, again, yeah, mm. I don't know what it would have happened if I would have figured this out before and I wasn't in this space. And I feel like that's mm. just like how many people are out there who are going through this but who don't have this lens of
0: endocrinology to look
2: at it in this way I can't even imagine yeah
0: what would you suggest in terms of like people trying to figure this stuff out on their own and how how can people try to yeah look at what they're getting from doctors critically I think it's hard because I think there's a lot of medical mistrust at yes. the moment mm-hmm. that's not always warranted Yes. but then stuff like this happens yes. so I know it's a really fine line to walk
2: and I think I mean, it feels like so simple, but I think just remembering that you are the one who knows your body the best Mm -hmm. and you know when something feels off. And you were just saying, and I kind of touched on this, but going into the doctor's office, like even though I'm an expert technically in endocrinology and in this and in my own body, I still felt like, oh, yeah, she's probably right. Like she probably sees hundreds, thousands of patients. She probably knows what's going on. And like I almost, I was second guessing myself going through like the mental agony, being like, yeah, maybe there isn't something wrong with my body, but just remembering that. You know your body the best you know when something is off so advocate for yourself and do your best to push for, your, for yourself when you're in the doctor's office doing your own research i think is helpful even if you're not in endocrinology i think you can still do your own research and come with questions for the doctor and then another thing is just get a second opinion even if you're in if you're questioning anything get a second opinion and then i think another thing that is really helpful is just talking about it with your friends and your peers Honestly, part of the story too, and one of the reasons I was sort of primed about PCOS in general is because two of my really good friends had recently been diagnosed with PCOS. And so we can talk more about this later too, in terms of education and just understanding women's health issues in general. But I think that just being able to talk about it with other people, like since doing the talk, so many people have come up to me and said, this is happening to me too. And I think it encourages you because you realize that you're not alone in it. And I think when you're in a doctor's office with one person who supposedly knows more than you it's really easy to feel like you're alone that they know more than you but if you have talked to other people whether it's friends family peers i think that helps you advocate for yourself and helps you realize that this is a bigger thing that happens to a lot of people Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and i think i agree with the tip of like you know your body yeah (laughs) you've had your body your (laughs) your life life. yeah you're very aware of how it feels and yeah i had a experience where i was getting a lot of pain and I i went to a male doctor and he was saying of was like, oh, it's just, just a UTI. And then I took the antibiotics and then I still was having the pain. And he's like, oh, the pain now is just from you need probiotics because it's the antibiotics that are causing the pain. But I was like, oh, something is really wrong. Yeah. And I have a degree in biology. So I was like, I know yeah. something's wrong. Yeah. And then I went to a women's health clinic and I had this thing called pelvic inflammatory disease, mm-hmm. which is really, really serious. Yeah. And if it's not treated, it causes infertility. Yeah. And you can go to hospital for it. Yeah. Exactly. But it was only exactly. because I knew, you know, I felt like I had some. You had expertise. Yeah. And the whole thing, it wasn't just I felt really sick and it was upsetting and emotional because of the fertility thing. I also felt not being listened to was really upsetting. Yes. And then I was thinking. Mentally, yeah, And uh, women who were going to this doctor and doctors like him. Yeah who don't feel like they can speak up and say, no, this is wrong. Exactly. One thing I wanted to bring up too, that I don't really have time to get into in the talk is that, and then you mentioned this, like
2: having a male doctor, and I feel Mm -hmm. like people think that's where a lot of the bias lies. And it is that, but it's also systemic. The majority of the doctors that I went to that were denying my pain or dismissing me were women. So there is a bias in terms of men and women and sort of obviously women empathizing with women more, but there's also just a systemic bias. And we can talk about reasons for that, but it's baked into the system in terms of medical education. And so I think it's more than just the gender of the the doctor that you're
1: going to. And the clinic that I went to gave me some really good advice that I feel like all women should listen to. They're like, you should never ever have pain and your doctors should do everything they should to understand where that pain's coming from and treat that. And exactly. I was like, okay, I'm going to go go forward with that advice and I think that that is right.
2: Yeah. I mean, part of these issues is that there's this difference in how we perceive women and men's pain yeah. in society, you know? So I think that's part of part of like why we went through what we did and why other women do and, you know, you can talk about IUDs, you mm-hmm. can talk about pregnancy, um, but especially related to like the menstrual cycle irregularities. I think that it's just assumed that, you know, periods will be painful and uh, being part of a woman is like going through this pain, you know, historically it was our duty to, you know, go through the pain of childbirth. And so I think the pain that women perceive is different, women are seen as hysterical or like overdramatic or like hormonal, um, even though men also have hormones and are also going through pain, but they're
0: seen more stoic. And so I think that's part of why these issues persist. Is there research in your field that looks at period pain specifically or so-called women's pain?
2: Yeah, yes, yeah. So I think it's a hard line to toe because, again, there's this myth that women are hormonal and we can talk about some research in our lab later that compares women and men and their hormones. But I think... It's hard to, because there is a disorder that people don't know a lot about called premenstrual dysmorphic disorder or PMDD. And it's basically when you think of PMS symptoms, Mm -hmm. it's basically like that, but exacerbated. So in the week or time before you get your period, it's like extra irritability, depression, anxiety. And so that's in about 6% of women, I think, and people don't really know a lot about that. And so sometimes women can feel like they're going crazy and like, what's happening to my body? And people are just telling them, you know, that's just. You're just a woman. That's just part of being a woman and going through your period, but it actually is a disorder. And so I think people don't recognize that. Are those things that are treatable? They, yes, they're treatable. Um, It's like a a known diagnosis and disorder. They don't know what causes it. That's the case for a lot of reproductive disorders, but most of the treatment is antidepressants and potentially like things to regulate your period, like birth control, which is another problem. One of the issues is that endometriosis and PCOS are really common disorders and they don't have a known cause or no cure. Because historically people haven't cared about women's health, and we haven't really invested in understanding what causes them. But one of the issues is that treatments for these disorders is birth control, and that's a problem because birth control has a lot of side effects. It doesn't affect every woman in the same way. It, it leads to depression in a lot of women. There is a massive study done in Denmark a few years ago showing that women were more likely to go on antidepressants after starting birth control, whether it was IUDs or the pill. Mm. And I think doctors don't—they didn't tell me about that. They don't tell anyone about that they just kind of hand out birth control as, as this sort yeah. of patch fix and i think that's one of the issues is that you shouldn't have to choose between depression or endometriosis and like also it's not an option for women with endometriosis or women with pcos who are already struggling with infertility birth control's not an option for them because mm-hmm. they're trying to get pregnant so there i think there's just a lot of layers that people don't think about when you're treating these disorders mm-hmm.
0: yeah it sounds like a lot of these are patch fixes so it's like exactly if you have a symptom that is increased depression, if you have PMDD, but then they're like, okay, then we'll treat the symptom. So exactly. you're not going to be depressed anymore. Exactly. And then we'll put you on birth control. But so it's... you have a
2: regular cycle. When I was like younger, I think I thought that I was getting like normal menstrual cycle because I was having, when you think about the menstrual cycle, I feel like everyone just thinks, oh, that's your period. But it's so much more than that. Mm-hmm. And people don't realize that you're not ovulating. You're not going through like the natural fluctuations that your body's supposed to go through every month or so. And I don't think I realized that until later, like when I started- learning more about hormones
0: in the brain and how they affect us. So can you tell us about our menstrual cycle? <laughs> I yes. I've seen the graphs yes. of the different a little, every yeah. time and I yes. am confused every time. I think <laughs> we have like a
2: high level view. Yeah. So basically, yeah, like I said, when people think about the menstrual cycle, I think we just think blood and cramps and bloating and like the period part of it. But it's actually this amazing sequence of events that's coordinated by our hormones that happens on average about every 28 days. So this is basically... Starting up the day of your period and then ending the day before your next period. On average, it's 28 days or so. And so your period, you know what that is. It's like when you're shedding the uterine lining, that's when you have blood. That happens for three to five days, sometimes a week. This is variable in women. And this is when your estrogen progesterone levels are low. And then throughout after the menses part, the blood part, your estrogen levels are starting to increase as well as your follicle stimulating hormone. So this is its name, it's getting your follicle or the immature egg sort of ready, ready to go. And then those increase around the time of ovulation. And then this other hormone called luteinizing hormone peaks and that triggers the egg to be released from the ovary. And that's what we know as ovulation. And then after ovulation, there's sort of this second phase of the cycle where progesterone kind of takes over and it's doing the same thing where it's preparing that lining for pregnancy. And then Basically, if the egg that's ready isn't fertilized by sperm, then progesterone and estrogen levels drop and then the lining sheds and you start that all over again. So it's this sequence of events that's happening, like your body and your brain is coordinating it to happen over this course of the month to get your body ready for pregnancy. The part of the blood part is just one small part of that. It's just a few days in this whole crazy cycle that your body's doing every month. So it's, yeah, kind of crazy. And I think one thing to note is that it's a vital sign. So if something is off with it, you should pay attention to that. So I think that's one thing that I and many other women have issues with is that if in endometriosis, for example, women experience a lot of pain. So if you can't go to school or you're like bedridden because you have pelvic pain, that's not normal. You should talk to a doctor about that. I know it's thought that periods are painful, but there's a certain extent to which they shouldn't be. And again, if you're missing a period or something too, that's something that you need to pay attention to because it might mean that your body isn't getting enough calories um, or you have something like PCOS too.
0: So you talk about it as a vital sign, which I've never heard anyone say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that something like going back to the idea of like education and these more mm-hmm. systemic issues? Yes. Is that something that doctors will learn when they're in medical school? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Honestly, Oh, oh my gosh, it's actually so interesting because this week there
2: was an article released in the New York Times called What Do You Know About Your Menstrual Cycle? And it was really fun. It was this 10 question quiz, which you mm-hmm. should take. It's interesting. And the theme of the articles, like we don't know a lot about it. And it started out with this fact that a third of pediatricians don't know the median age at which girls start to menstruate and it's 12 to 13 years old, but like a third. And then the talk, I I talk about like 80% of med schools don't include menopause, which is insane. And then if it's included, it's often an elective. And this is half of the population we're talking about. If not pediatricians, then who else should know better about the menstrual cycle? Like it's puberty. This is, Mm -hmm. it's insane. So I think that then it's just like, you think about that and then it's like, oh, well, it makes sense that (laughs) doctors didn't know know what was happening with my body. Is there a lot of movements for changing those things? I think so. It's really hard for me to gauge that because I think I'm too deep in this world. I feel like I see articles like this popping up all over the place now, but it's really hard for me to gauge that. I think that it's definitely being talked about a lot more recently, but it's hard to understand whether that's going to be like a systemic change because I think it's rooted really far back in terms of these problems and why we don't include women in mm-hmm. science, what's being studied in science. So I think one of the issues with medical ignorance or like issues that I went through, you went through in terms of getting diagnoses is just ignorance and this unwillingness to understand our bodies as worthy of study. Mm-hmm. And this is related to the historical notion, not just in medicine, but all over the, the norm and that the ideal is the male white body. And that's the norm upon which everything else is based on. So this is true when you look at not just clinical research, but basic science research. So animal research is what we use to make decisions about drugs, make decisions about treatments, anything. It's basically what all of our clinical research is based off of. And the majority of the research in these animals has been done in male animals. And the insane thing is that this is true for even models of disorders that are more common in women. So like women are two times as likely to get Alzheimer's disease, more likely to be depressed, anxious. But then when you look at the male models of anxiety, depression, and Alzheimer's disease, it's in male animals, which Mm -hmm. makes zero sense. So you can imagine that this has consequences, including women's health issues, not Mm -hmm. being studied like pregnancy, menstrual cycle, menopause, and then just consequences in terms of like what that means for drug development and like how there are negative consequences in women because they weren't studied in women. It was only studied in men. And you can't just apply a male's body to a woman's
0: body and expect good things to happen. So why is it that, like, what's the excuse for not including (sighs) females? So many.
2: I think the main thing was that, and this goes back to like this myth that women are more variable because of our Mm -hmm. hormones. So I think variability was a key reason to exclude females because we have menstrual cycles. But this myth was debunked by a guy named Pendergast. He did this very big study where he looked at basically the coefficient of variation in a bunch of different factors in male and female animals. And he found that basically the coefficient of variations for a bunch of these factors, including like the menstrual cycle or cage mates and things like that were essentially the same for male and female animals, but that there were actually, there was more coefficient of variation on average in male animals than in females. Like if you're using the variability myth as a reason to exclude anyone, it should be the males based on that. So I think that's typically what's been used also just it's expensive to include two sexes it's just like stu- it's just stupid what? things like yeah because yeah. you have to separate them you have to separate yeah. them by cage. yeah so it's just i mean i guess like baked into this idea yeah. that we can just study men and that it's fine and nobody will care and again it also goes back to if you think about like who had been the scientists and it's been white men right. that also makes sense they weren't experiencing pregnancy or menopause mm. or a menstrual cycle so you know research is me
1: so like they didn't think to
2: even study that
1: at all i've done animal research mm. and we've always used male yeah, animals same i uh, didn't even yeah, think of like exactly. until i
2: started doing endocrinology research after grad school
1: it's yeah. just part of what i don't know it's just part it's just of how part you do of, it exactly yeah. and like it takes someone to question and then, oh hmm, yeah why are we doing that <laughs> but also i feel
0: like the variability argument even though it's been debunked it kind of is admitting that <laughs> there's all this stuff going on for people mm-hmm. who are menstruating that we're not looking at, because it's like, oh, this is impacting things so much mm, that we can't include you, but we're not going to study what's going on. Exactly. It's
2: like, it's just blindness.
0: So is there animal research now into things like the menstrual cycle? Yes. Yeah. There's been a ton of work on the
2: estrous cycle, which is sort of the rodent's Mm. version of our menstrual cycle. It's four to five days shorter, Mm -hmm. but you see similar fluctuations in estrogen or estradiol and progesterone. And this is the basis for which our work in the Jacobs lab is based Mm -hmm. on, because this research shows very powerful evidence that hormones affect the brain at a structural and a functional level.
0: Mm, what kind of things?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so for example, Catherine Woolley was kind of a pioneer in this area. She did rodent research looking at the astro cycle. So she showed that during stages in the astro cycle where estradiol is high, you see an increase in synaptic spine density in the hippocampus, which is this area of the brain that's really important learning and memory. And then
1: spines were lower during times when estradiol was lower and what does it mean if spine density is increasing or decreasing yeah so then she later did some work and there have been
2: a ton of other work in this area too on the same thing but synaptic spine density they're really important for like, excitatory nerve transmission and it's kind of the basis for long-term potentiation or what we know is like a cellular mechanism for learning and memory mm-hmm. and then so this is kind of the structural level and then there's beautiful work in non-human showing the same thing and then you see estradiol is also related to increase in memory performance. So if you do something like an ovariectomy, so you remove the ovaries from an animal and then you add back estradiol, that's associated with increases in learning and memory on a bunch of behavioral tasks.
1: So does that mean that during the menstrual cycle, there are times that we have higher performance in learning and memory? Potentially, that's something that we're
2: trying to understand at the clinical level. Again, it hasn't really been done before and it's really hard. To study the menstrual cycle. So that's something that we're trying to tease apart in the lab and see how the brain changes over the menstrual cycle. And we have done a study and are working on more stuff looking at that as well.
0: Yeah. What what are the challenges of studying this? Because I know that you take this twenty-eight-day cycle, but then some women don't have the twenty-eight day yes, cycle. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the Yeah. So I there?
2: think, you know, one thing too that's difficult about the menstrual cycle and like being diagnosed with a disorder that's menstrual cycle related is that there is a ton of variability not just Mm -hmm. between individuals like you could have a 35-day cycle i could have a 22-day cycle but just even within yourself month to month Mm -hmm. that can change and so i think typically when people are studying the menstrual cycle they get someone like in the follicular phase like during one phase of the cycle like a bunch of individuals and then they maybe study the same people later in the cycle how do Um, they know what phase people are in I don't know. It depends. Sometimes they just do it based on tracking, like a clue app. Sometimes I think they can test for population. I think some people do that with temperature checks and Mm -hmm. things like that, but it's difficult. And this makes it hard to understand how the brain is changing alongside with it, because this is a rhythm that's changing every single day. Mm -hmm. And so that's why in our lab, we used a dense sampling method, which is where we, in our case, we took one individual who's a grad student in our lab, Laura, and she scanned herself every day. She <laughs> got her brain scanned, got her blood measured every single day over the 28-day menstrual cycle. So this, as you can imagine, makes it easier because there's no variability across individuals and the endocrine system is changing dynamically every day. And so that allows us to like more intricately understand what's happening to the brain. So she scanned herself every day and then she did this again on birth control. So we're able to look at what oh. happens to the brain so (laughs) she was more interested in the functional changes across the Mm. brain so there's a scan that you can do in the mri called resting state where you kind of just lay in the scanner um, with your eyes open for about 10 minutes or so and it's just supposedly showing what happens to your brain like quote unquote at rest when it's not actively engaged in a specific task and what she found was that with increases in estradiol across the cycle there was overall increased whole brain functional connectivity so basically like different areas mm-hmm. of the brain were more efficient at talking to each
1: other they were more in sync with each other with higher estradiol which is crazy yeah and then <laughs> so what are the implications then if you're on birth control and you're not yeah. getting these what, yes. yeah so with her case it's a little bit difficult because
2: She actually, she took a birth control that had estradiol and progesterone and they were Mm. expecting her estradiol to be suppressed, but it wasn't. So we actually couldn't look at that. But Caitlin in my lab, a postdoc researcher looked at structure because we found a lower progesterone with birth control. She was able to look at how normal fluctuations in progesterone versus suppression of progesterone Mm. affects the brain. And she found that with normal fluctuations of progesterone in the typical menstrual cycle, subfields of the hippocampus change. So the hippocampus is, again, this area important for learning and memory. It's densely packed with receptors for estrogen and progesterone. And a lot of people just look at it as one structure, but it actually has many individual structures like CA1, CA2, 3, cebiculum, things like that. And she saw that some of these areas were increasing and some of them were decreasing
0: with progesterone. So, it's basically these brain regions are like shrinking and getting bigger. Yeah, volumetrically. Over the of,
2: volumetrically. Yeah. yeah I feel j- like
0: we never think about our brain no, like getting I'm bigger. No, it's crazy. And, and I can talk <laughs> to
2: you about the 28 key stuff too. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, when she yeah. goes on progesterone, I'm getting too excited. <laughs> so progesterone. And this is a chronic hormone suppression with progesterone contraceptive. These changes are abolished. So, there are no changes. Like, you don't see those same fluctuations in these areas. So, it's crazy because I feel like we've never seen anything on such a short time scale and that's what the done sampling methodology mm. allows us to capture in one person like how rapidly these things can
1: change mm. I, my mind's just getting a bit blown here <laughs> <laughs> i just didn't re- i don't know i guess <laughs> I just was like, "Oh, we get our period, and like that's hard, and we get tired, and we yeah. get sad." But I wasn't thinking this. Oh, month our brain. Yes. Okay. The thing too is, a- and this is like the Jacob. Like <laughs> <head of> brain. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think,
2: like people, doctors, like people, I before being in this lab, you kind of think that ovarian hormones like progesterone, and estrogen, like, only affect the ovaries, and yeah. you kind of think of it as like localized effect. But the brain is a really important part of the endocrine system. It. it- guides the production of these hormones from the ovaries, and it has receptors for these hormones. So the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, which are areas that underlie cognition and memory, have hormone receptors. So that means that they can be affected by fluctuations in progesterone and estrogen. And so that's kind of why we're interested in studying these things, because people forget that these systems, the nervous system and the endocrine system are very tightly linked.
0: Mm. Yeah. So do you ever feel like there's a tension, I guess, because I also in my undergrad was in a similar lab and I guess like having the experience of being someone who was cycling or I think at the time we were doing research on differences in memory when people were on the pill Mm -hmm. versus naturally cycling and I remember thinking like well I don't feel different yeah so maybe these things are happening to the brain both structurally and like in terms of connections but what is the actual impact and like is there a tension between being like this is really important and there's all these receptors and things are changing in the brain versus not overstating like women are like
2: (laughs) yes and like emily our the advisor our lab was this was what she said she was worried because i mean if you think about society and like women's Mm -hmm. rights and reproductive health and everything you can think about how things like this would be overblown and just taken into you know a bad way and like she was worried about reproductive health research and especially contraception research being weaponized against us yeah this is reasons like one shouldn't take the pill because it's messing with our hormones in like ways that we don't know but i think obviously we decided that it's better to know than to not know because no one's looked at this but yeah i think one of the key things we're trying to incorporate is understanding like does this actually have an effect on our day-to-day life and experiences Mm -hmm. in terms of cognition and memory and that's one thing that we're looking for as we go to do bigger studies, because this is just in in Laura and one one participant. So the next step is obviously to like extend this and see how it changes over women who have like a normal menstrual cycle, over women who might not. In Laura, I don't think we found any major issues because mm-hmm. we did sort of cognitive tests and sort of questionnaires and stuff with her, but we didn't find anything. But again, mm-hmm. that's just one person, mm-hmm. so I think that's another link that we really need to think about. Because if you think about something like menopause, when you're you have this really dramatic decrease over many years in estrogen, progesterone, there's people experience brain fog and some women experience that a lot more than other women. And so one of our other questions in lab is sort of understanding why that might be sort of the neurological basis for that.
0: Mm. So, yeah. So, so that's a case in which like women are noticing that things are exactly. And-, and then are you seeing like big, big differences? I'm assuming like bigger changes in the brain from like a full estrogen drop-off in menopause versus just fluctuations
2: a little bit there hasn't been a ton of human research there's been some Mm -hmm. research in terms of brain volumes decreasing with surgical menopause and Mm -hmm. the hippocampus and other areas of the brain and then there's been a lot of I think animal research because again you can just kind of remove the ovaries from an animal more easily and you can't really do that in humans
1: (laughs) (laughs) so So
2: you can remove ovaries and then see that there's a dramatic decrease Mm -hmm. in like cognition and brain structure but you can't do that in humans really and one of our studies kind of gets at that. Uh-huh. Um, I think it's difficult to study a lot of these things in humans. And so that's another reason why, you know, we're just learning about them now.
0: Yeah, that's scary. Also, for the same reasons of, oh, yeah. when I go through menopause, am I going yeah, to lose all my cognitive function? <laughs> yes,
2: exactly. And like some people, like the big question is like some people breeze through menopause. Like, yeah, but I mean. some women, this is the same thing for pregnancy. Like some women mm-hmm. experience like extreme Postpartum depression, some women experience PMDD, but we don't know why that is because it's not, you look at their hormone levels, it's not just a difference in hormone levels, it's something else. So we're really interested in like individual differences and what can contribute to those in women and how are they related to hormones? Are there any like hints. I, like, what it would be? <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know. I think I'll, some of it might be genetic, mm. um, which is the case for everything, obviously. And I think the same mm. questions can be said for like why people experience PCOS or endometriosis. I mm. think a lot of it's genetic. If your mom had PCOS or endometriosis, you're more likely to have it too. But I think, yeah, we really don't know the individual difference question. And so I think that that's another thing we need to pay attention to, because I think that the notion mm. in the medical field is to treat everyone kind of the mm. same. And, not everyone going through menopause will need hormone therapy, but a lot of women will. And so I think we need to pay attention to that and realize that people will experience these endocrine transitions differently. Mm-hmm. Well, selfishly, I'm glad that you're doing the work now because it'll <laughs> yeah. probably
0: be fine. <laughs> <It was really laughs> <fun>. but- <laughs> <laughs> so you also mentioned that you've been, you've been doing some research, not looking at people who are cycling, but actually mm-hmm. looking at people without a uterus. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. And the cycles there, because we've been talking about the menstrual cycle, which mm-hmm. is like month-long yeah. versus these diurnal cycles yes. that are mm-hmm. daily. So can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that and the mm-hmm. depth sampling that you did there?
2: Yes. So basically, so Laura had her partner Pavel scanned. So we basically did the same thing that we did with her, but in her partner. And what we did was scanned him 40 times. So we scanned wow. at the same... Yeah. Just to be clear, this is like yeah. lying in a giant it's magnet not, yeah, for
0: how long were the scans?
2: I not like 30 minutes to an hour. We oh, yeah. did structure, function, um, and then he also did like questionnaires. He did blood draws. Wow. And, um, every day. He did blood draws every day, and he also did saliva samples for a lot of it. So for a certain number of scans, they collected morning and evening sessions. And then, <laughs> yeah, so it was 40 sessions total. Some of those are morning and evenings. Mm-hmm. Every and day. Every day. For, so it's basically across the same length of, as a menstrual cycle, but within her partner,
0: who doesn't have a uterus listeners it'd be so fun to be <laughs> Yeah, you're <laughs> if you're looking for a partner <laughs> yeah seriously but anyways
2: yeah so I think one of the things is that women are seen as super hormonal but people don't talk about male hormones and male hormones are or quote-unquote male hormones mm-hmm. women and men both have estrogen progesterone testosterone etc but predominantly in men their hormones are changing on an even shorter time scale than women. So they have these diurnal fluctuations. So peaking, cortisol, estradiol, testosterone, like around 8 a.m. in the morning, and then decreasing throughout the day. And so we wanted to sort of capture this cycle. And then with the same dense sampling methodology, see what happens to the brain at the structural and the functional level. And Hannah, a grad student in our lab, looked at the same thing at resting state as we did with Laura. And she's finding... Very similar things. Increased brain functional connectivity with increases in estradiol and testosterone and cortisol. And then I'm starting to look at the structure of this right now. And I'm seeing crazy things of whole brain structural changes changing in tandem within a day in tandem with hormone levels. Wow. So decreases throughout the day with decreases in hormone levels, which is insane. So, again, you think about women and this notion that we're fluctuating and changing more. But then you look in a brain in someone without a uterus and you see changes on an even shorter time scale
0: so that should be debunked
2: <laughs> once and for all <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's so crazy to think that our brains are just like so yeah. what is it what does it mean for a region to or is it like a contraction where it's like losing water <laughs> yeah, <it's> floating, like <laughs> I mean, like in the needs of this right yeah. now, so I'm trying to figure
2: out what, I have no idea what this yeah. means but you see a lot of cyclical variability in hormones and like animals. And from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense for like different species to have Mm -hmm. higher hormones at different times. But I don't know what it means. Like when you're looking at such a short time scale and why the brain would change so much. I'm looking at things like gray matter and white matter, you know, areas of like cell bodies, changing just like very global measures. Mm -hmm. We're also looking at the hippocampus too. I don't think we found any differences in that, but that's what we're trying to figure out is why is this
0: happening? Because can you tell what's changing? Like, is it that Things become more densely packed. So it's like a contraction, or is it that like cells from a certain area are dying or moving to some other that's I don't
2: think we can look like that intricately, unfortunately, but we can look at things like ventricle size and CSF. So Mm -hmm. when we see like increases in brain volume, we're seeing decreases in CSF and ventricle size. Yeah, (laughs) cerebral spinal fluid. So that's just kind of the fluid that your brain sits in that provides it with nutrients. Mm that's it kind of has an inverse relationship where like Mm. when the brain is getting smaller the csf gets bigger which makes sense because Mm. when you kind of look at the brain it
1: it just needs to balance
2: out in general Mm. so Um, i don't know what this means
1: but okay so i was gonna ask if (laughs) if it's shrinking and there's more nutrients is that replenished? like do we know what's going on i have no idea
0: this is my summer plan (laughs) to to work it out okay (laughs) stay tuned (laughs) tuned
1: that's so crazy though i
0: never think of the brain
2: as As being that possible and like this has so many implications because now i'm like oh my god like for our scanning like now we have to make sure that we we should be scanning our participants at like a time locked Mm -hmm. um, yeah time locked because who knows like how that's affecting our our measures if we're looking at brain structure Mm -hmm. or and how that's affecting function too
1: so we've kind of been speaking about how the hormones in this cycle can affect you know, our, our mood our memory things like that what about the other way around? So if someone is anxious or depressed, how mm. does that affect the hormone? Like, can that have an effect on our hormones as well? Is yes. it just, is it going both ways? No. Or Yeah. The key thing is like that it's a
2: really powerful bi-directional relationship in terms of behavior and hormones, in terms of feeling anxious or some sort of feeling and hormone and affecting hormones. I think it's hard because When the doctors told me that I was stressed and that was why I wasn't getting my period, it was hard because that is a really common reason for women to not get their periods. It just wasn't the case for me and I think that's important to know so a lot of people if they're too stressed i think evolutionary makes sense because if you're really stressed you don't want your body to be making a baby same thing like if you aren't eating enough or you're exercising too much which is another reason you could not be getting a period your body shouldn't be creating a baby so i think evolutionary that's why your menstrual cycle might not be taking place why you might not be ovulating so yeah stress can affect hormones and it can prevent you from ovulating and things like that too And this is true in people who don't have a uterus. There's a really interesting example that Emily talks about in her class where there are men watching a soccer game, I think. And when their team loses, their testosterone goes down or their hormone levels Mm -hmm. go down. So it's like,
0: (laughs) it's a bi-directional relationship that, you know, your behavior can affect your hormones and vice versa. Yeah. How can you apply this research? Mm -hmm. Because it sounds like a lot of it is, Just we're really in a discovery phase. We don't really know what's going on. But knowing what you know now, are there things that you've changed in your life? Maybe like you mentioned also going off the pill. Was that Mm -hmm. also to do with the research that you've gotten into?
2: A little bit. Yeah, I think one of the most dramatic studies that I've already talked about is the one in Denmark and just seeing how many people or how common it was for women to get depressed. And I feel like I know this colloquially with a lot of my friends who their mood changes they get really depressed when they go on the pill and this makes sense because you're introducing like these foreign synthetic hormones and you're just chronically suppressing your hormones which are otherwise typically fluctuating every month so i think yeah personally i wanted to go off the pill because i think we also just again don't really know the long-term consequences of this like does this affect i don't know who knows what it affects in terms of like pregnancy or menopause or anything like that so for me it was just I wanted to see my baseline self because I had been on the pill for so long. But otherwise, I think the applications of this are important when you think about something like Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Postmenopausal women are a lot more likely to get Alzheimer's disease. And so we're interested in whether hormones have to do with that. And again, being able to treat things like PMDD, endometriosis, PCOS, that are all related to hormones somehow, but we don't really know how yet.
0: One of the things that is like, stressing me out about hearing <laughs> about this is the fact that you were able to get your diagnoses but you also know so much Yeah, and I feel like I don't know anything I wouldn't be able to get diagnosed but I also know that I have pretty good access to health care yeah and yes. I'm sure if you're in a place this where is. you maybe aren't really educated on yes. this because why would you be educated on it yes. then you don't have access to exactly. a doctor or let alone two yes. doctors that you can get yes. second opinions on this is a
2: whole yeah I feel like you talk about this for so long, but I think this is a huge issue when you look at, and I think you can see this in the numbers. When you look at endometriosis, the diagnostic timeline is 10 years. And if you look at studies, again, most of the studies are done in white women. Mm -hmm. They looked at endometriosis rates or diagnostic rates in black women, and it was 50% less likely to be diagnosed. So you look at 10 years and you add on who knows how many years, and I know you talked about this in your medical mistrust, Mm -hmm. but it's the intersectionality of all of these things being compounded or just leading to longer and longer timelines for women and then education yeah yeah and I don't know what it's like what it was like for you but in America we had sex ed and you separated like girls and boys and oh. like learned
1: about no we didn't have okay that.
2: <laughs> but I feel like sex ed is not good I feel like one thing we need to be better at in general is just opening up a dialogue and being able to to talk about these things mm-hmm. and not being disgusted by talking about women's health, mm-hmm. not being disgusted about periods and the menstrual cycle and birth control. And I, I think that having people who don't have a uterus who, or who don't cycle learning about these issues will be really important too. Because I think it's like, oh, you're a woman or you have a uterus, you cycle, only you need to know about that. But that's not the case at all.
1: Yeah. And I think the kind of shame or if you feel uncomfortable talking about this stuff even I sometimes have that talking about periods yeah. and stuff <laughs> and I'm a woman I'm and the same is, and
2: I'm like look, yeah in this world it's
1: just like the stigma feel it. Yeah, yeah there's something and like I don't want to feel that way but mm-hmm. there's sometimes I feel uncomfortable about it hearing I don't know and I don't want to feel that way but it's, yeah
2: it's so true and I think that we really need to start this at like a young yeah. age like yeah we need to And people should know what a normal menstrual cycle looks like. And Mm -hmm. so I think that will help girls from a younger age. So it prevents me at like 28 from knowing what's happening to my body at 28 rather than when I was 15 and first went to the doctor. Mm -hmm. I think that if I knew what a typical menstrual cycle looked like and I knew what could go wrong with it, then I would be able to ask questions about it. And then obviously there's the other side of changing the medical system in terms of just having doctors understand also what could go wrong, and also being able to inform us about the side effects of birth control and how it might not be a good fit for everyone. And then there's also the question of like funding in women's health too. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think it's hard because the advice is listen to your body, figure out what's right for your body. But then we're not really taught to do those exactly. things. And then if you're that. put on the exactly. pill really young, then
2: exactly. that's your baseline. You don't yeah. have anything else. How yeah. do you know? Yeah. yeah. So I think
0: people need to understand, like,
2: what is normal, what is not.
0: Yeah. It's and a lot of levels. Of it
2: is. There's so <gasps> much so that much. needs to change. Yeah. It's, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I there's also so think that this idea that we've talked about that Emily, your advisor, is also worried about that all of these things could be used to weaponize mm-hmm. different women's health, demonizing the pill and stuff. I feel like with my doctor, who I loved mm-hmm. in Toronto, she delivered me like oh. she was my doctor forever. When I was a teenager, I had gone on the pill and I was having a lot of mood swings, mm-hmm. but I was also dating like a 16-year-old boy at the time, so like that could, yeah, what scary. could it have been? I don't know. But <laughs> I remember coming to her and asking her if I could switch birth control methods mm-hmm. because I just felt like the pill was doing something to me. And she was like, that's not a thing. Like, that's not a real mm, thing yes. and that doesn't exist.
2: Yes. This is an issue where we don't do it like by individual and the other issue is that when you think about hormones, why do we have only a hormonal birth control option? The main thing about hormones is that they're widespread. Like we have receptors in our bodies everywhere for these hormones. And so it's going to impact the brain. It's going to impact your mood. It's going to impact everything. And so I think there hasn't really been an incentive to find another sort of form of birth control that's not hormonally based. And then there's the other aspect that's why do women have the burden of taking Mm. birth control? That's the whole issue. There's this example of the very early trials of women going on birth control. And they noted a bunch of side effects like blood clots and depression, anxiety, et cetera. And then regardless, the drug goes to market and women take birth control. And then there's this headline from CNN that talks about a trial for male birth control that ends early because males experienced side effects that included very similar things like anxiety, depression, et cetera. So it's just our, again, our society's perception of what women should be able to tolerate versus what men should be able to tolerate is like, and then the burden is still on women to take birth control. It's like, I think there's just so much that needs to be changed.
0: Yeah. I've also heard women say that they wouldn't let their partners be in charge yeah. of oh, taking the know, birth control. They're like, that's not, I know that you know. wouldn't be able to do that. I know. <laughs> so, which is another issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: I feel like this is cracking open a lot of people. I know. 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 (laughs) Well, we can end on a positive note. I think what we've learned is that you should listen to your body, get a second opinion and you shouldn't have to feel pain. Maybe we can also have you share some of what you're up to next.
0: So yeah, my summer project is kind of looking at structural changes in someone without a uterus who
2: has these diurnal fluctuations and how that changes the brain. I'm also looking at Laura in terms of her structure and how that might change across the natural menstrual cycle mm-hmm. and then on birth control. So that's kind of my summer project. And then in addition to that, I'm really interested in, of course, reproductive disorders. And one of the projects I'm really excited about is also a dense sampling project where we're looking at a few women who have endometriosis and we're looking at how a common drug for endometriosis affects the brain. So in addition to birth control as a treatment for endometriosis, there's also a treatment that basically shuts down hormone production by shutting down the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal access. It's, we don't need to get into the details, (laughs) but basically it's a drug that you take and it immediately shuts down hormone production, like within a few days. Wow. And so it's supposed to lead to improvements in in the lives of women and their pain. All hormone production? Just the production of estrogen and progesterone. So it, it shuts down hormone levels to like postmenopausal levels within a few oh, days. Wow. So what I'm doing is I'm scanning women a couple of times at their baseline and then 24 hours after they take the drug and then a week, two weeks, a month, and then a few months into taking the drug. And then once they go off the drug, I'm scanning them as well. And we're getting blood draws and cognitive measures. So I'm really interested in seeing how the brain changes at an intricate level with this immediate suppression of hormones.
0: Well, okay, thank you. well, we're excited to see what you do, <laughs> yeah. and we'll be waiting impatiently to figure out yeah. what to do what we, we have do. menopause. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining thank us you. and for sharing your story. Yes. Yeah, thank it's you for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> thank you to El Morada for joining us this episode. We highly recommend that you check out El's TEDx talk called When Science Becomes Personal, Tales of a Patient Researcher. This will be linked in our show notes, but you can just find it with a quick Google as well. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, the Australian one, and me, Ava Matasouza. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. In the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on MindsMatterPodcast.com.